Um, just a little bit before we get going, um, these are lectures on Shakespeare. They're called Approaching Shakespeare, if everybody's in the right place. Um, and their aim is to give you a sense of some Shakespeare plays you might not already know, but also a sense of kind of methodology, how you might try and turn these plays around in your mind as you come to work towards the portfolio. One important thing about the lectures is that they're all recorded. They'll be on iTunes U, where there are already 21 lectures on other plays that I'm not going to be talking about this term. So, if you have a very distinctive cough that you want to copyright, uh, come and um, speak to me about it, um, because you'll hear it, um, you'll hear it on the recording. More seriously, the only disadvantage to you, I think, is that one thing I've learned from doing these lectures in the past is never to refer to a handout uh, in, the, in, in the lecture itself, because people just email and say, where is that handout, and I've absolutely no idea. So I've, you've got a handout, nobody else who listens to it will get one, you just have to try and keep up. Um, and if the handout isn't very clear, uh, try and email me in the week and I'll see if I can do uh, a better job of it next time. Um, in addition to that, we won't have questions after the lecture. I think that's quite a relief anyway, because it seems one of the most excruciating Oxford genres, uh, the post-lecture questions. Um, but that doesn't mean I'm not interested in your questions. And again, email me. Um, I haven't put my email address by mistake on the handout, but it's, oh, it's what you would expect, emma.smith at Hartford. Okay, so uh, I'm going to do a really st sort of stilted segue. That's all not going on the, t on the tape, and then we're going we're to start. Okay, does everybody feel happy with where we are? And does everybody have a handout? Okay, so this is the first lecture in the latest series uh, in the, in the uh, series called Approaching Shakespeare. The format of these lectures is very straightforward. I try to get under the skin of the play by asking a single question about it and try and think how the critical work that's been done on the play might cohere around a single question. The main aim then is to get you to think about the sorts of resources we might use to think about Shakespeare's plays, the kind of methodologies uh, or, or frameworks we might bring to bear on them, and how to ask questions uh, about them. And I think that the asking questions is really crucial to me, not so much the answering. I'm going to try and give a, um, an outline of the play each time, so if you don't know what the play is about, you won't be completely lost uh, to start with. Uh, and because of the plays I've already recorded in this series, I've got a slightly strange um, grab bag of plays left at this point. There isn't, um, there isn't a narrative which joins all these plays together, they're individual lectures. And today's play is Coriolanus. So, Coriolanus is a late tragedy probably written around 167 to 8. 167 to 8. So that makes it closest in time to Antony and Cleopatra, and then to the late plays, the so-called late plays, uh, Pericles moving into uh, Winter's Tale, uh, The Tempest, and Cymbeline. I'm going to say more about that context a little bit later. How, how might that context be illuminating? Coriolanus may have been written with a particular eye to the possibilities of performance at the indoor theatre Blackfriars. The King's Men had just occupied that from 1608. So it could be one of the first plays that's got an eye to Blackfriars' performance. And I'll say a little bit more about that too and why that might be um, interesting to think with rather than just a fact to know. So the story of the play, I actually always find this bit the most difficult, actually the summary but this is, this is my go at this. This is the story of a general from Rome's ruling patrician class, Coriolanus. He turns reluctantly to politics after a successful military career under the tutelage of his powerful mother, Volumnia. But Coriolanus is too proud, too angry, too something, we'll talk more about that, to make himself agreeable to the people whose support he needs for his candidacy. The conflict with the people escalates and it ends up with Coriolanus being banished from Rome. He decides to go to the camp of his archenemy, Orphidius, and to lead Orphidius's armies against Rome. Okay, so he turns to join his enemies uh, against Rome. He's persuaded to be merciful to Rome by an embassy of his mother, Volumnia, and his wife, Virgilia, but this means that he's lost the trust of Orphidius' army. They turn on him and kill him. So, the question I want to focus my lecture around 
may seem, and I think they often do seem, so trivial or minor as to be a kind of a joke. It's not, it's not a joke. I hope there will be some jokes in these lectures, but uh, not this one. I'm going to try and convince you that this is a question which opens up some bigger issues. So this is the question. Much of the first act of Coriolanus is about a major battle offensive won by the Romans under Coriolanus against the Volsci, Orphidius' troops, the Volskis, V-O-L-S-C-I. As the Roman victory under Coriolanus' leadership is announced, the consul Cominius tells the young soldier he can have anything he wants as a reward. This is what Coriolanus says. I sometime lay here in Coriol at a poor man's house. He used me kindly. He cried to me, I saw him prisoner. I request you, Coriolanus continues, to give my poor host freedom. Of course, says Cominius, in a phrase that uncomfortably predicts later events, were he the butcher of my son, he should be as free as is the wind. Who is this man? What's his name? By Jupiter forgot, said Coriolanus. I'm weary, yea, my memory is tired. Have we no wine here? So it's a tiny vignette. Coriolanus says, the thing I want most is for the Volscian person who helped me when I was fighting against the city uh, of Coriol to be, to be freed, to be, to be freed from uh, as a prisoner of war. Cominius says, fine, we'll free him. Uh, what's his name? Coriolanus says, I don't know. So why does he do that? Why does Coriolanus forget the name of his comrade? So we could begin to answer this, I guess, by acknowledging that the real agency we should be talking about here is not that of Coriolanus, but of Shakespeare. We all know, of course, that authorial intention is, following Wimsatt and Beardsley's famous formulation, a fallacy. <coughs> Asking what the author intended is one of the most risibly unsophisticated manoeuvres of literary interpretation. But, on the other hand, the question of intention is one that won't quite go away. If you're drawn to that uh, kind of... Um, if you're drawn to that as an interpretive model, if you're drawn to intentionality, even as you know you shouldn't, uh, one way to do it and to kind of gussy it up in more academic ways is to look at Shakespeare's sources. So as you already know, Shakespeare's plays have all pretty much got quite direct sources. Uh, there are some things that uh, critics adduce that Shakespeare knows about that have somehow just gone into his mind uh, and got transformed and come back out. But there are an awful lot of books that he had open on the table while he was writing. Okay, Don't try this at home. So you can look at Holinshed's Chronicles and construct how Shakespeare flipped through the pages of the actual book to mash up events from different parts of the historical periods that he's using for his history plays, for instance. Or we can look, as we will do next week, at Arthur Brooke's poem, Romeus and Juliet, to see how Shakespeare works uh, kind of on the fly, cutting, uh, shaping, reworking uh, with, the, with the original source uh, on the table in front of him. So if you want a glimpse of Shakespeare at work, this is clearly the place to go. The Bible for this is still Geoffrey Bullock's Narrative and Dramatic Sources of Shakespeare, a big multi-volume work organised by play that prints the sources. Bullock isn't so good on the bits, though, that Shakespeare left out. Uh, he doesn't think that something that you leave out is a source, whereas actually it's quite an interesting negative source to think, um, uh, for example, at the beginning of the source for King Lear, there's a big bit about Lear's wife, uh, which clearly Shakespeare has just left out. Um, so we could say that hasn't played any part in Shakespeare's play, but in fact it's played quite a big part, hasn't it, negatively, by being read by Shakespeare and left out. So Bullock's not so good on the bits that Shakespeare left out, so one... Uh, one trick with how to use these resources is if a, if a source looks interesting to you, try to find uh, the complete version rather than just the bits that Bullock has edited uh, in, that in that compendium. So Shakespeare's source for his Roman plays, for Julius Caesar, for Antony and Cleopatra, and for Coriolanus, not for Titus Andronicus, which he seems to have made up entirely in a kind of Roman pastiche which has no source. Um, but for Julius Caesar, Antony Cleopatra, and for Coriolanus, the source is the translation of Thomas North's, um, Tom, the, sorry, the translation by Thomas North of Plutarch's Lives of the Noble Grecians and Romans. It was published in English in 1579. The publisher of the English edition, Richard Field, is a contemporary of Shakespeare, also from Stratford. It seems very likely that they knew each other. 
Shakespeare must have owned this book or otherwise had close access to it. We don't really understand how Shakespeare's reading uh, quite worked, but he must have had close access to the book over a period of years since he uses it intensively from 1599, the period of Julius Caesar, right through uh, for the next uh, seven or eight years. So, to ask why Coriolanus forgets the name of the person who helped him, we could go to North's Plutarch. And sure enough, in that text, Coriolanus also asks for a pardon of a man who helped him in Coriol. The text doesn't give us the man's name. He's just an old friend and host of mine, an honest, wealthy man. So an old friend and host of mine, an honest, wealthy man. But there's no suggestion that Coriolanus has forgotten what his name is. Uh, there just isn't a name given us in the text. But we don't go on to get a little kind of pointless, in a way, exchange. What's he called? Mm, I've forgotten. So the exchange about, in Shakespeare's play about the name of this person has as its sole purpose establishing that Coriolanus has forgotten it. Intentionalist junkies get their fix. Coriolanus, forgetting the name of his helper, is distinctively chosen by Shakespeare at this point in the play. It isn't just mimicking or carrying forward part of the source. It's a good argumentative basis for saying that something is important in Shakespeare if you can point to a way in which it is obviously uh, purposefully different from how it was in the books that he was reading. I, I guess I'm trying to say that this forgetting might be somehow more widely significant for our interpretation of the play, and therefore North's Plutarch is useful. But if we stay for a minute with Plutarch, we can perhaps see another interesting shift that Shakespeare has made to the story he finds in his source. Coriolanus, in, the, in Shakespeare's play, explicitly states that the man who helped him in Coriol was poor. I sometime lay here in Coriol at a poor man's house. Plutarch tells us equally explicitly the man was an honest, wealthy man. Often Shakespeare changes words because, uh, because of how they'll scan, and clearly wealthy wouldn't have scanned here, but rich uh, would have been another monosyllabic word that he could have used. So there seems to be something distinctive in moving from a rich man to a poor man. In this play, which is so deeply about class conflict, it's hard to see that shift as being accidental. So let's talk a little bit about class in this play. And clearly, if you want to talk about Shakespeare's politics or Shakespeare's attitude to the lower classes, uh, Coriolanus, I think, is probably one of the most important plays in the canon. The play begins with the stage direction. Enter a company of mutinous citizens with staves, clubs, and other weapons. It's a play which starts with a riot. These armed men have a simple aim, rather to die than to famish. So they're hungry, they can't afford food, and they are marching on food stores maintained by the patricians. Now this food riot against high prices does have its origins in Plutarch, but there must have been a more immediate prompt for Shakespeare. The 1607 grain riots in his native Warwickshire, Northamptonshire and Leicestershire, which were known collectively as the Midlands Revolt. Basically, what's behind the Midlands Revolt is a series of poor harvests and rising food prices. Shortages particularly caused by the new enclosure movement that was taking up arable land for profitable sheep pasture caused rural unrest. All the kind of pastoral things in Shakespeare which are, or in the literature of this period which we think of as being kind of totally apolitical and away from all that. In the, the kind of pastoral economy, the idea that you would bring a load of sheep uh, into land which had been used for arable crops was deeply political. It's a really interesting way of thinking about, say, as you like it or something, what's happening in there. It looks like an apolitical play, but it's really sheep are kind of re really big uh, in, in, the, in the kind of politics, in the economic politics of uh, the late 16th century. So we've got these kind of natural disasters or natural problems, poor harvests and so on, but we've also got a really important uh, class dimension or social status dimension, hoarding by wealthy people uh, to, ra to, to raise the price. Uh, that's always, almost always the case about food shortages. They're not usually necessarily short uh, in absolute terms or so short that people can't live, but they're short in terms of uh, supply and demand and, the, and pricing. It may be that Shakespeare shows a close knowledge of the complaints of the rural poor in an unfamiliar word, an unfamiliar word to him that he uses in Coriolanus, the word depopulate. 
depopulate. It's a word which is also found in the petition of a group called the Diggers of Warwickshire around this same time. Shakespeare's own position in relation to these events, though, is a rather difficult one. And here we need to get a sense again how far biography is or is not an admissible part of literary criticism. Shakespeare had himself been fined for hoarding barley. So he's one of the people who keeps up uh, stores in order, to, in order to inflate prices. Holding on to excessive stock so as to capitalise on and ex accelerate rising prices caused by shortages. Edward Bond's 1973 play Bingo, the most negative depiction of Shakespeare I think that was ever been, kind of wonderfully so, is only the most extreme representation of a Shakespeare more likely to be identified with patrician grain hoarders, Coriolanus, rather than with the hungry citizens, the other people in the play. Now, where the sympathies of the play Coriolanus lie in its depiction of class conflict is really hard to pin down. It's rather like what we call even-handedness when we think it's a good thing uh, in political conflicts like Richard II or King John, or evasiveness if we don't think uh, even-handedness is a good thing. Uh, I've already done lectures on those, which you can listen to if you want to. Often the history of the play and performance has been the attempt to stabilise its ambiguous politics, to make them legible in the politics of the present, to identify is Coriolanus someone we, we're supposed to sympathise with or not. Leftist rewritings by Bertolt Brecht and by the author of Look Back in Anger, John Osborne, have been accompanied by fascistic versions. It's perhaps not surprising that this, not the troublingly hybridised identity politics of Merchant of Venice, was the favourite play of the Nazis. So is the fact that Coriolanus forgets the name of what's newly in Shakespeare's play a poor man significant in the light of his general distaste for the lower classes? His own uncompromising first speech sets the tone for his interaction with the people. What's the matter, you dissentious rogues, that rubbing the poor itch of your opinion make yourselves scabs? There's a whole body politic metaphor which goes on very explicitly in Coriolanus, but this is the really kind of leprous version of that. It's not just that these people are some lesser part of the body, but they're a kind of scabby, uh, itchy, um, uh, really kind of disgusting <coughs> part. And Coriolanus' encounters with the people doesn't get much better. He's forced to seek the people's voices, their votes, and their affirmation for his political ambitions, but he can't bring himself to do so. Accused by one of the citizens in 2-3, you have not indeed loved the common people, Coriolanus doesn't at all argue with that and says, you should account me the more virtuous that I have not been common in my love. So he never argues with the fact that he hates them. Uh, and treats them like dirt. Baited by the tribunes who have class conflict as their ultimate political aim, Coriolanus reveals his true disdain for the people's role in the state. I say again, in soothing them we nourish against our senate the cockle of rebellion, insolence, sedition, which we ourselves have ploughed for, sowed and scattered, by mingling them with us, the honoured number who lack not virtue, no, nor power, but that which they have given to beggars. So Coriolanus belongs to the honoured number. That's the phrase I would pick from that speech, the honoured number. That's a kind of version of the, of the elect, of the group that are uh, born to rule Rome. Uh, this is a distinctly kind of class or birth consciousness. The people are the cockle of rebellion who fritter away the work and the gains made by the patricians. So given Coriolanus' explicit resentment of the claims of the, as he sees it, idle poor, what should we make of the fact that the Coriol man whose name he forgets has been changed from a wealthy man in the source to a poor man in the play? Is this a further example of his fundamental dislike of those lower orders, a sense that he doesn't care enough to remember? Perhaps this is a mini-dialogue which is simply another sign of Coriolanus' status fundamentalism. Okay, so that would mean that one way to answer the question, why does Coriolanus forget the name, would be to say it's something to do with Coriolanus's character. It's a sign of something interior, something characterological, something about him and how he thinks. Now, if we're going to go along this line, we'll talk in a minute about whether that's a good line to go along, but if we're going to go along this line, it might be that we should actually try and use this method to interpret the incident a bit more, in a bit more sophisticated a way. 
what William Hazlitt called Shakespeare's supererogation. Fantastic word, supererogation. It's the sheer unnecessariness, the sheer excessiveness of all that verbal and poetic and circumstantial detail. We might adduce that here, supererogation. Why, why this unnecessary gesture? Maybe then, forgetting is a snippet of insight, one of the ways Shakespeare gestures towards a larger and more mysterious interior life of his protagonists. Sophisticated character critics would like this kind of incident to tell us something about the character which is not otherwise obvious. Since it's completely obvious that Coriolanus hates poor people, it's not really very worthwhile to have another example of it. Freud tells us in The Psychopathology of Everyday Life that even the most apparently trivial of forgettings has a motive. For him, it's the motive of repression or self-protection. In chapter one of The Psychopathology of Everyday Life, Freud analyzes his own inability to remember the name Signorelli. And he concludes that, besides the simple forgetting of proper names, there is another forgetting which is motivated by repression. We forget things because we can't bear to remember them, broadly speaking. So this kind of theory might suggest that Coriolanus forgets the name for some deeper reason. We might read it, for example, giving an insight into the trauma of battle. Shakespeare is very interested in soldiers who come home. I mean, we are very interested in that too now. So Shakespeare's who come home, the psychological consequences of fighting and so on. Uh, and that's enabled us to see in Shakespeare a whole lot of um, approaches to that from Much Ado About Nothing through to Othello. Lots of male characters in Shakespeare have been to war. Uh, even Petruchio, in a very, very small kind of throwaway remark. It's quite interesting to think what, what we're supposed to, what we could make of that now, um, now we're so interested in the consequences uh, of um, violence on particularly the male psyche. So perhaps this moment of forgetting then is a glimpse behind Coriolanus's robotic military presentation. This will be important in the play because it's a play which is really, really unwilling to give us glimpses into Coriolanus's psyche. Coriolanus is not a play which many people have liked very much. And as I was thinking about this lecture, I was sort of trying to think how to take on that fact that it's uh, not just a play that nobody really uh, looks at or thinks about so much, but actually a play that people feel they don't like. <coughs> and one of the reasons, I think, for this is that again and again the play attempts to get to know Coriolanus, the person, and again and again it's rebuffed. Coriolanus himself is not very likeable, but the critical history, which has not found the play likeable either, seems to suggest that if a protagonist rejects us, it makes for a play that also rejects us. What do I mean when I say uh, that the protagonist rejects us? Well, one, one argument would be how few lines of soliloquy there are in this play. Soliloquy be has become, for Shakespearean tragedy, since at least Hamlet, eight years before Coriolanus, a privileged moment where we feel we get some access into the protagonist that they cannot or are unwilling to share with other play characters. So soliloquy makes the audience special and creates a special kind of relationship between the audience uh, and a character. Not always with this tragic character, so with Iago, for example, rather than with Othello, uh, but with somebody who's there uh, on stage. The soliloquies we might expect here as indications of that inner reflection are fractured into acerbic public asides. The play is thus constructed in a way that reinforces Coriolanus's unwillingness to plead for anyone's good opinion. He doesn't take the time to persuade the audience, just as he doesn't take the time to persuade the citizens. He won't work for the citizens' <coughs> votes, he won't work for the audience's good opinion either. Because clearly, soliloquies are enormously coercive. Uh, we know that you know, one of the things when, when someone speaks to us directly in the, in the theatre uh, is that we are immediately somehow taken into their world, however unwillingly we're on their side, we're closer to them than we are to anyone else uh, in play. So because of, in part because of this, because Coriolanus is so uh, impermeable, uh, both, in, both in character terms but also in structural terms in the way that tragedy has come to show character, one dominant strand in this whole play is the frustrated attempt to understand Coriolanus himself. When he is not on stage, and sometimes when he is, the main business of the play is trying to work out what he's like. Even that opening scene that we already just touched on is an example. 
The company of mutinous citizens starts by talking about uh, grain prices and their hunger, but immediately diverts the discussion into an analysis of the play's central character. He's a chief enemy to the people. He's a very dog to the commonalty. He's also someone who has done services for his country. Opinions on Coriolanus vary right at the beginning, before we meet him. Soft-conscience men can say it was for his country. He did it to please his mother and partly to be proud. So the revolt over grain prices particularly becomes a debate about the character of the play's central figure. It's almost as if in Coriolanus political events are merely the occasion for the anatomising of a central character who can't display himself from the inside out and has to instead do it from the outside in. This is a play in which inner conflict is compulsively externalised. It's a play full of conflict, a conflict, class conflict, conflict between the Romans and the Volskis. But maybe one way of seeing all those is as projections of a kind of inner conflict which we're used to seeing through soliloquies as part of the kind of tragic self. Coriolanus thus remains a source and a symptom of dissent. No one can get a handle on him, and I think that's no one inside or outside the play. There's a scene when he arrives in disguise at the stronghold of his old enemy, Orphidius. <coughs> Most of that scene is about how difficult it is to describe him. The men who meet him there find it hard to describe his singularity. He had a kind of face... I cannot tell how to term it. I thought there was more in him than I could think. This sense that Coriolanus is hard to get hold of and hard to describe keeps, uh, keep, it keeps coming up. And accompanied with that is a sense that he isn't a person but a thing. I used folgerdigitaltexts.org, which is the best free online uh, texts of Shakespeare. There's a lot of crappy old texts, Victorian texts, which have been put up. Uh, one of the weird things about new technologies is that often the, the actual fundamental scholarly work they use is extremely outdated and old-fashioned, but you'd never look at it. If it was in a book, you'd be able to tell by the book this looks like an old thing that nobody would care about. So folgerdigitaltext.org is the only kind of properly edit edited modern text online that you should be using. Um, I use that to look for the word thing. It's one of the, one of the aspects of how Coriolanus is it repeatedly... people sort of reach for an idea that he's not human. They use this word, thing. He's a thing of blood, a noble thing. It's reported he leads them like a thing made by some other deity uh, than nature. Um, sometimes it's a kind of nothing, but still the thing. He sits in his state, a thing made for Alexander. Coriolanus even used the words of himself to express his, his affinity with Orphidius. Were I anything but what I am, I would wish me only he. So this is a reading which, in repeated use, registers Coriolanus' inhumanity. He's a thing, not a man. It's echoed uh, in Wilson Knight's description of him as a blind, mechanic, metallic thing of pride. It's kind of one of the ways in which Coriolanus is a sort of superhero in a sort of cyber, slightly cyborgy kind of way, I mean a kind of externalised ex exoskeletal kind of person um, doing these amazing uh, feats and, uh, in a rather amoral or kind of troubling, uh, troubling way. Uh, there'll be a prize for anybody who does Coriolanus' cost superhero costume, I think that'd be excellent, uh, only in Oxford. So, uh, arguing for a traumatised Coriolanus who has made himself a fighting machine only at great personal cost and encapsulating this in this tiny vignette of his forgetting the name of the man who has helped him in the terrible unspoken scenes inside Coriol, gives us a brief moment of access to a more interior, a more accessible, a more broken Coriolanus. Uh, one of the things about our current, uh, and the superheroes are not, not too far from this actually, one of the things about our current interest in male heroism is very much, I think, about that kind of broken, beaten up, uh, reconstructed, scarred kind of individual um, uh, that's where all our sort of heroes, uh, you know, Bond, Batman, those kinds of people, that's where they've all got to uh, in, in, their, in their lives. So, so, of course, this is something which we're interested in now. Uh, we wouldn't have been interested in it uh, 25 years ago. Now, it, it also um, 
I guess, the, the idea that, so I'm still on the idea, why does Coriolanus forget in a more kind of psych psychoanalytic way? Why does he forget the name? Perhaps what Coriolanus is suppressing is the knowledge that we already have. Coriolanus is a byword for treachery in this period. Uh, the knowledge that he too will act against his own side in the future conflict with Rome. Okay, so Coriolanus is talking about what's essentially an act of treachery. The man in Coriol uh, collaborates with the enemy, i.e. Coriolanus, rather than uh, with his own side. So it's him, himself and his own treachery, or his own future treachery, Coriolanus is thus forgetting. The American Psychological Manual defines post-traumatic stress disorder in terms that are strikingly similar to many character analyses of Coriolanus. And I don't say that because it makes it right, but I say it because they're a kind of converging, uh, they're, they're converging discourses. A sense of numbness and emotional blunting, detachment from other people, unresponsiveness to surroundings, anhedonia, which is a word I've never used before, uh, and it's such a great word, it's unfortunate, it means the inability to experience pleasure, anhedonia, avoidance of activities and situations reminiscent of the trauma. So the forgetting anecdote then, in Coriolanus, gives us the psychological equivalent for the audience of the ghoulish wish the citizens in the play have to see Coriolanus's wounds. We all want to see beneath the exterior. Coriolanus doesn't want to show us that, but according to the procedures both of Freudian analysis and of character criticism, he can't help but let it slip. He tells us something that he didn't intend to tell us in this act of forgetting. Now, if you listen to any more of these lectures or come back in future weeks, you'll gather that I'm generally sceptical about characterological interpretations to the kind of questions that players ask us. Or, at least, I wonder if there are some more interesting ways we can think about ideas of dramatic character. Answering with a focus on the individual person, as if he or she were real rather than a cluster of words on the page, tends to skew our interpretations away from the constructiveness of the play as a whole, the structure of the play as a whole. It may be to fall prey to what sociologists call a dispositional over a situational view of the play world. A dispositional view means that you believe all, th all things are caused by human beings, they're all, they, they're all caused by p people acting. Situations mean you're interested in the kind of the broader the broader situation, the broader circumstance, the broader exter external uh, framework in which things happen. And I guess I'm trying to move from a dispositional one, which we've just been talking about, to a more situational one. The sense that identity is a product of the private individual interior is a view of human character that 20th century psychology has completely normalised. But there are ways in which early modern understandings of motive and action were more situational. They were more conscious that people acted as they did because of external factors rather than internal compulsions. We've also come to see that identities are performed, invented and projected as much as they are internalised. And clearly, of course, the theatre is a really great way to see that. So in the last sort of third or so of the lecture, I want to take up the challenge of that moment of forgetting in Act 1 with which we've been focusing, to try to develop two different ways of rethinking character and how character works in this play. One is to think quite closely about naming character as a property of the name, and the other is to think about character as performance. So let's think about naming first. Forgetting that single name in that tiny um, uh, vignette which I've blown up to be so important in the play. Forgetting that name becomes, I think, overdetermined in Coriolanus because of where it comes in the play. The main purpose of the first act of the play is to give Coriolanus his name. Okay, so it's not a coincidence that Coriolanus goes and smashes up Coriol, obviously. He gets his name from smashing up Coriol. The man who is known in the first scenes of the play as Caius Martius gets Coriolanus as an honorific in recognition of his bravery uh, about... Uh, 35 minutes into the play. Although lots of other Shakespeare characters undergo status or name changes during the course of their play, obviously it's quite a common idea in history plays, none adopts their new name as the name of the play. And how the play, both its characters and in its print apparatus of stage directions and speech prefixes, how the play names this character, I think is worth examining. How it comes to know that this person is Coriolanus. So the play takes its name, as I said, from the honorific given to Caius Martius in recognition of his, of his exceptional bravery at the Volskian town of Coriol at the end of Act One. 
His grateful soldiers cry, all cry, Martius, Martius, that's the stage direction, all cry, Martius, Martius, and Cominius the general declares him Coriolanus. That's in Act 1, Scene 10. The folio text, printed in 1623, it's the only early uh, authoritative text of Coriolanus, which isn't printed in, in quarto form before that. The folio text continues to label the reluctant hero Martius in speech prefixes throughout the remainder of that scene. So Cominius calls him Coriolanus, but the play doesn't quite catch up with that new name. It's not until his triumphant entry as Coriolanus, crowned with an oaken garland in 2-1, that the play's apparatus gives us the eponymous tragic character Coriol, short for Coriolanus. So there's something about the structure there, something about the structure of the acts. It's at the beginning of Act 2 that Coriolanus emerges uh, in this new name. So Coriolanus' tragic name, and with, his, with it his identification as the play's tragic figure, is thus somehow rather belated. He kind of grows into that figure rather than being presented uh, as it. It gives a strange, strange structure to the play. I think one of the things that's happening in the second half of Shakespeare's career is he's really trying to experiment with, uh, with the shape of his plays. And that's something which we almost entirely lose in the modern theatre because we think of the plays falling into two halves so that theatres can make money selling drinks uh, in the interval. Uh, these are plays which don't fall into, never fell into two halves. They weren't written to fall into two halves. They fall into quite different breaks. And if this is a Blackfriars play, then the act break is the most important one because, as you know, Blackfriars candles needed to be trimmed uh, in between the acts uh, because the play was lit by candlelight. So there's something about the naming and the, and the act structure which seems somehow to work together there, I think. Moreover, the new name Coriolanus serves to upset rather than confirm Martius's previous name. So in the folio text, Cominius names his general Marcus Caius Coriolanus. Marcus Caius Coriolanus. And it's a formula which is repeated by uh, a, a group, omnes, everyone. So many editors from Nicholas Rowe, who was the first modern editor of Shakespeare in 1709 onwards, have corrected the names to the more proper, more correct, Caius Martius. Caius Martius is not called Marcus, that's a different name. He's called Caius Martius, but in the folio he's called Marcus. In North's translation of Plutarch, Coriolanus's new name prompts a long digression, which Shakespeare must have read, with numerous examples, which is about how Roman names work. Uh, what's the first name? What's the surname? What's the family name? What's a name you can get for being brave or whatever? So North goes on and on and on about names at this point. Uh, uh, and that somehow, I think, is collapsed into uh, this, this de texture of naming at this point in the play. It's odd, then, to see the folio commit a double mistake. Marcus Caius Coriolanus inverts the order of the names. It should be Caius Martius and turns Martius into Marcus. The footnote to the play's most recent edition does nothing to clarify um, this is, this is uh, Peter Holland's footnote from the uh, uh, Arden Shakespeare. Uh, the folio's order for the name is repeated later and hence is unlikely to be an error. It placed the emphasis on the character of Martius, the man who belongs to the god of war, Mars. Of course, Martius belongs to Mars, uh, but in fact he's actually called Marcus here. Now the effect of these muddles mean that the folio text of the play inadvertently forgets Coriolanus's name in the act of bestowing it. See what we did there. This is a scene about forgetting. Textually, the play keeps forgetting names. Coriolanus then forgets a name. You put either of those could be accidental or incidental or unimportant, but put them together, uh, and there's a kind of Oscar Wilde quote waiting to come out. Maybe there will be a way to extend Freud's analysis of forgetting names to treat the text rather than its central character as the patient. Perhaps trauma or repression might be for some reason the condition of the play itself rather than a private property of its hero. Perhaps that might be a way, using Freud's idea about forgetting or about error in the psychopathology of daily life, might be a way of thinking about textual errors uh, which tend to be, uh, which in some ways are the most interesting things about Shakespeare's plays but tend to be written about in the most boring ways. So... My argument here is that, uh, that the kind of mess and confusion about names in the folio text here seems more than accidental or trivial because it's followed within a couple of minutes by that uh, amnesia over the poor man in Coriol that we've been discussing. So the play underlines, that's to say, the importance of 
and the fugitive nature of naming. North's description of the way that Roman names are allocated offers a map for different models of personal identity. Names can be got from family, they can be got from the deeds of the individual, uh, they, can be, they can be got for some uh, kind of uh, particular intrinsic quality. So you can, you can get your name or your identity from uh, your inheritance, from your own deeds, uh, or, or from something about what you're actually like uh, internally. These are all forms of naming uh, in Roman custom. And these associations, I think, indicate some of the many ways in which the play refuses to separate out individuals from each other. It's got a much more contextual sense of how uh, individuals uh, operate. The scene of Virgilia and Volumnia's embassy to the exiled Coriolanus in Act 5 is a good example, because Coriolanus uh, is, is used for Coriolanus to utter the vain wish, much quoted, really interesting quotation, he, uh, Coriolanus wishes man were author of himself. Man were author of himself. So Coriolanus has this kind of fantasy at this point, uh, perhaps as many people would do, um, beset by their family, wanting something from them. Uh, he he fantasises a version of, of his own identity which was free of that, which was the name Coriolanus, in a way, the name that he has got for himself through his own deeds. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that this play has some potential affinities with the plays around it in Shakespeare's writing career. Obviously, most people will put Coriolanus with other Roman plays because they would think that Romanness uh, or Romanitas is the most important thing about it. Or they might put it with other tragedies, which I guess is the drift of the kind of character criticism I've been talking through. But we might also think about the play uh, chronologically, um, uh, looking at a, a modern edition like the complete Oxford Shakespeare or something which puts the plays in putative order of composition, just throws up some of the things that are going on at the same time. Um, if we did that, we would see uh, that probably the play which is closest to Coriolanus in time is the play Pericles. And I'm interested in how Coriolanus might be thought to anticipate the late romances. Late romances are all about the way in which broken or alienated men, like Pericles, like Laontes in The Winter's Tale, are healed by the reunion with female family members, the returned wife, the lovely virginal daughter. Now, it's a sign of the weird gender complexity of Coriolanus' family, which I don't have time to go into, but it's a really, really, really interesting, um, uh, really, really interesting topic. And I guess Janet Edelman, uh, great book, Suffocating Mothers, um, does what it says on the tin, is the best uh, account of that. Janet Edelman, A-D-E-L-M-A-N. Uh, so it's a sign of the complexity of Coriolanus' family that it's not his wife and daughter, but his mother and his wife who come to Antium to try to persuade him not to attack Rome. But the structural suggestion is the same, that in Act 5 of the play, the broken man would encounter his female relatives and turn, the course would turn uh, from tragedy to comedy. That's how the romances work. We think that this, in Coriolanus, perhaps, is going to bring him back, to make him whole, to reintegrate him. But in fact, the success of their persuasions, he does agree not to attack Rome, make it inevitable that he's going to die. He's not, like his romance successors, going to have a new lease of resurrective life. Family in Coriolanus is a sign of weakness, not, as the coming plays will try to recuperate it, an ultimate sign of strength. That desire to please his mother, which we hear in the opening lines of the play, returns as the site, then, of Coriolanus's greatest vulnerability. When Volumnia prevails with him not to sack Rome, he acknowledges that the peace is most mortal to him, fatal. Mother, mother, what have you done? Volumnia taunts him with the own, uh, with, with, with this, the, the implications of his own name. To his surname Coriolanus belongs more pride than pity to our prayers. What Coriolanus is called becomes increasingly fractious in the play's final scenes. And I'll leave you to have a look at that, but the idea that, that the ways that names circulate around, is he called Martius, is he called Coriolanus, is he called Boy, which is one of the things Orphidius uh, says, uh, which is most offensive to him. Shakespeare's tragedies are titled to underline the importance of the single name, as if the tragic form is somehow an exploration of what it means to occupy that name. 
Many tragic heroes talk about themselves in the third person, and disputes over what a name means, or who has the right to occupy it, are often the visible or external sign of psychological breakdown. Here in Coriolanus, the proper name, therefore, as a symbol of personal autonomy and individuality, is held up for particular scrutiny. We see names being made uh, in this play, and we see how they're being used, uh, and we see something of how that affects uh, the individual who bears them. Perhaps the permanent forgetting of an offstage character's name gestures to the importance uh, of, of that investigation. One last point, then, about theatre. I've already mentioned the possible importance of the new Blackfriars to the writing of Coriolanus. Blackfriars was an indoor theatre with a smaller, more elite clientele, a higher ticket price, and Baroque stage effects made newly possible by candlelight, as opposed to the open-air amphitheatre-style playhouses like The Globe. If you're interested uh, in finding out more about this, look up the Sam Wanamaker Theatre, which is newly opened as part of Shakespeare's rebuilt globe on Bankside. Uh, the Sam Wanamaker Theatre has really majored on lighting effects and how the kind of murkiness of Jacobean tragedy uh, has its visual counterpart in uh, the, the kind of lighting effects that this new theatre was able to do. But I'm not so interested in lighting uh, for now, and I'm more interested instead in the potential class aspects of this venue. This is a play, as we've already discussed, which has class as one of its most prominent themes. Coriolanus characterises his reluctance to seek the people's voices in the language of metatheatre. <coughs> the personal political display which is demanded by the citizens is repeatedly characterised by this reluctant military hero as a piece of bad drama. It is a part that I shall blush in acting, says Coriolanus. It is a part that I shall blush in acting. Right at the end of the play, Coriolanus acknowledges himself as a player again. Like a dull actor now, I have forgot my part. Coriolanus does not want to be an actor. He does not want to display himself before a hungrily consuming audience. That's a perfectly legitimate um, position for a soldier to take, but it is a bit of a problem for a character in a play and particularly a character in a play in a new theatre with high ticket prices and seats arranged close to the stage in order to get a good view. Coriolanus, that's to say, is somehow at odds, uh, not just with the political environment in Rome, but with the social and theatrical environment of Blackfriars. Audiences tend not to like performers who show that they feel disdain for them. There's something, therefore, suicidal about Coriolanus, not just as a military hero who doesn't care about personal, uh, 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 personal hurt, and not just as an alienated Roman who is banished from his country, but also as a performer. He goes into a play saying at every stage, I do not want to perform for you. I don't want to show you. I'm not going to do what you want. So the disdain that he shows for the play's audience of citizens attaches itself to the theatre audience. There's something interesting about class going on there, uh, that, the, that, that although Coriolanus's immediate audience on stage are the lower classes, the extended audience at Blackfriars are, in some ways, the sort of London patricians. And what, what's going on there? Uh, I leave that as a kind of question rather than something that's worked through. But the question of whether we need to like Coriolanus for the play to work seems to me a pressing one. Uh, and a one which criticism has implicitly answered uh, with yes, we do need to like him in order for the play to work, and no, we don't, and no, it doesn't. Discussions of Shakespearean tragedy and character tend to be drawn, of course, to Hamlet. Hamlet holds out his shiny interiority to us like a kind of psychological clickbait. I've never used that word before, and I was very pleased to use it then. Um, Coriolanus reveals itself, it, by contrast, to be preoccupied with problematising the very issue of character itself. Shakespeare's final tragedy, I think, performs that inscrutability that Hamlet talks about. Hamlet's always saying, you don't know what it's like to be me, you don't know what it's like inside me. And we think, God, we do. We've heard you going on and on and on and on about it. In Coriolanus, we really don't know, I think. Uh, we're, we're not given that access. So Hamlet talks about it, but Coriolanus performs it. 
At every moment in Coriolanus where dramatic identity might be secured through family, through social position, through soliloquy, naming, consistent action, self-knowledge, all the time we get character turned back on itself in a kind of ironic self-analysis. Even at the very end of the play, Coriolanus is still subject to multiple interpretations. Uh, this has been a play about uh, the kind of conflict between Coriolanus and his almost alter ego, brother, friend, enemy, Orphidius. So you would think that, they would, that, that Orphidius would kill him uh, in single combat. That would be the way that kind of uh, slightly homoerotic kind of wrestling between them, more than slightly homoerotic wrestling between them, would, would play out. Uh, Orphidius would kill him and Coriolanus would kind of, it would be a kind of orgasmic death in a way. Um, uh, we don't get that. Uh, Coriolanus is attacked physically by a mob in parallel with that verbal dissection of his character with which the play began. We've, we met a mob at the beginning, we get another mob uh, at the end. In each case, what they're trying to pull apart is Coriolanus, um, figuratively at the beginning, literally by the end. The Volscian people turn on him, kill, 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 kill him. And the stage direction, which is the most brilliant stage direction thinking Shakespeare, draw both the conspirators and kills Martius, we've taken away Coriolanus's name from him in the stage direction, I'm not quite sure why, kills Martius who falls. So sorry, i read that again. Draw the, both the conspirators and kills Martius who falls. Orphidius stands on him. It's an amazing, uh, it, 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 it's a kind of amazing uh, tableau of diminishment isn't it? The, the, the death of the tragic hero is usually the moment of, you know, us really kind of focusing on them, a kind of moment of stillness or something, uh, which really, even in the act of annihilating them, makes them the most important thing in the play. Here we've got something quite different. Coriolanus is denied life, name, dignity, and singularity in this final tableau. Okay, so I've wanted to try and think about that tiny scene of the forgotten ally in Coriol to draw out some of the ways we might think about this play in the round and the ways we might try and anchor big questions uh, about plays in some quite small uh, details. I'm conscious that the portfolio requires you to write really quite small essays, quite short essays, uh, and thinking about how you can uh, keep the detail of specific um, play moments uh, and draw in some bigger issues is something that I've tried to think about in these lectures. Some of the things I've tried to raise then is about tragedy and generic structure, about the use of sources, about the methodology of character criticism, about early modern theatre, about how we might think about the early printed texts of Shakespeare as kind of critical and interpretive points rather than uh, just uh, factual ones. Finally then, I touched on the idea just now that we already know what will happen at the end of Coriolanus. Coriolanus was already a known figure uh, before this play. And next week I'm going to try and talk more about the implications of already knowing. That play is going to be Romeo and Juliet, and my question is going to be why that spoiler right in the opening prologue. Do come back. <laughs>